made a really good point. Well, for the last several months, on Sunday morning, we've been speaking about the subject of pride. We've looked at several different messages. We've looked at pride from several different uh, viewpoints. And today, I want to try to wrap up this study. That's not a promise, but unless God directs me to do otherwise, while well, we're going to, we're we're going to in the subject today. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter number 3. Revelation chapter 3. I think most of you know this was written while John the Apostle was exiled out on the Isle of Patmos. Can you imagine someone thinking, man, what a, what a place to end up after all of these years of loving God and serving God and it just doesn't seem fair that... I end up out here. What a mess. It's just something about this not right. And yet, in that situation, God spoke to him and God spoke through him. And God used him to give us this record of the revelation. And it begins here with these seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These letters are from the Lord himself. But he uses the instrumentality of John in order to communicate. And now we come down to the last letter, the seventh letter, verse 14. And under the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would that thou were cold or hot. And so then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white remnant that thou mayest be clothed, and that, the, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Having preached in hundreds of churches over the years, uh, I, I, I discovered something, and that is that churches like people have a way of gaining a reputation. Uh, nearly every church over time will have a reputation in the community, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And, and, and as I was thinking about the message and thinking back over the years, you know, I, I can think of several examples from churches that I preached in. I, I was thinking about the singing church. And uh, in case you, you, I'm sure you never heard of that, but if you lived in Harmon, Arkansas, or around Harrison, Arkansas, and just ask anyone, where's the singing church? And they would send you over to that independent Baptist church in Harmon, Arkansas there. And uh, I'm telling you what, uh, that, that is about the singingest church I, I'd ever been in. The piano player played the piano, you know, and she she played the piano and the stool at the same time. By that, I mean she just bounced around from one end of the stool to the other end, and the people were singing with that kind of an enthusiasm also. 
And so they have a reputation there, the singing church. Everybody knows who it is. Uh, and I think of another church uh, that has a reputation of being a strict church. That's up in Kentucky. And uh, some woman, girl, lady come into the service and, and the length of their skirt isn't, doesn't meet their approval. They have some people, ladies already appointed. They've got covers. They'll walk up to you, cover you up, whether you like it or not. They are just that strict. And a lot of them are strict in other ways. I was thinking about another church that uh, has a reputation for being the motherly church. And I'm not going to tell you what town that's in. I won't even tell you what state it's in. This church was responsible for starting, and, and, and thank God for that, starting several other churches of like faith in their community. And so that was a good thing. The bad thing was that even after they did, they wanted to maintain a measure of control over those churches. After they've been organized, and in this particular case, the church I was preaching in was about five times the size of the mother church, and the mother church was still trying to dictate what they do. And uh, it didn't set very well with the pastor, who someone, many of you would know, by the way, uh, then uh, another church, I can, in fact, I can think of several, had the reputation for being the feuding church. I mean, they're constantly fighting about something. They go from, you know, one fight to another. They get a pastor, and within a year, he's gone to get another pastor, and then they have a church split, and they're always arguing about something. Then there's the liberal church. Well, the list can go on and on and on, but I want to speak to you this morning about the proud church. And that's the church here at Laodicea. And notice, uh, they said, I am rich. This is verse 17. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And as a result of that, notice what Christ says. He, he says here in verse 16, he says, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, most of the time when we think of this church, it's referred to as the lukewarm church and you know, for good reason. That was the indictment against it. But today I want you to think about the pride aspect of the church. And there's no question about that. To put it another way, we could say this is the church that makes God sick. Wouldn't that be an awful uh, reputation to have? Can you imagine some folks in the community, you know, asking, well, uh, what church do you attend? Oh, I go down there to that church that makes God sick. Uh, but but that, that describes this church. It literally made God sick. He said, I will spew thee, vomit you out of my mouth. And so uh, we don't want a reputation like that. But mark my word, we have a reputation in this community for something, whatever it is. Uh, you know, I've heard people say, well, this is the friendliest church that, uh, that I've ever been in. Now, I hope we never lose that reputation there, uh, but I hope we're known for something other than friendliness because friendliness alone is not going to get anybody to heaven. And so it's important, though, that we, that we care about what others think about us as a church. So here in this last of the seven letters written to this church, which was about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, 
And, and you know, if you look look at those seven churches, it just like formed a semi horseshoe and starting at one and going up and down. And so now we get to the very last one. And uh, this was a very wealthy city. Uh, so much so that even when it was destroyed by an earthquake about 60 A.D., they refused to receive government aid. And keep in mind, this is the chief city in what we would call a providence of 24 different Roman cities, and this is the chief city. It has been destroyed and they refused to receive government aid or aid from other people anywhere. They were wealthy enough that they rebuilt the entire city by themselves. They were proud of their self-sufficiency. And for this church, the, if you noticed, the Lord had no words of commendation. And uh, the other churches... He, you know, he starts out and he mentions, he commends them for something. I know your works and I know this and I know that. He's commending them. And then he gets down to deal with the problem issue in the church. But in this church here, there are no words of commendation. It's all condemnation. And, and for good reason here, it was due to their pride. You know, and you say, well, what have they got to be proud of? Well... What about us Texans? You know, anybody that you know was born and raised in Texas and uh, or transplanted there for very long, all of a sudden they take on this Texas pride thing. We're so proud to be from Texas. I remember when I was a boy and was, I don't know, eight or ten years old and was visiting some relatives and had this one. It was a it was a distant cousin to my mother. And hardly ever got to see him. And he lived down here in Texas. And I'll never forget, we're having sort of a semi-family reunion. And he showed up in a big old Cadillac convertible with those big long horns on the front. I, I mean, really, I'd never in my life seen anything like that. He is so proud to be from Texas. Well, these people were proud to be from uh, Laodicea. This was their hometown, one of the chief cities. They were proud of their wealth. It was a wealthy city. They they were proud of their wool because they were well known for a black wool that was of great value. They were even took pride in their water because their water there was lukewarm. There were thermal springs. They had, to, if I remember right, they had. To, bring their water in, the cool water, refreshing water from six miles away because the water there was lukewarm, unfit to drink. But as you might imagine, boy, you know, those that loved to bathe in the warmth of the water, you know, that was something they took pride in. They could be proud about the wonders of their medical research. They had a famous medical school there that that in some way through their research developed an eye salve that that nobody else had anywhere and so this was one of the one of the wonders all of a sudden that they have discovered something that'll help people with poor eyesight and they were so proud of that they could even be proud of their worship because there were numerous temples i mean you go down the street and here's a temple to this god and over here's a temple to that god in fact, in fact, they did not even oppose Christianity. 
It's one of the few cities that we know of to where there was no persecution against the Christians. Oh, welcome, you know, come one, come all, you know, your God just as good as our God. And everybody, you know, everybody, hey, they were proud of that. Just like a lot of people are proud of the ecumenical movement. They're proud that they embrace all religions, just like that's something to be proud of. So here is a city that is absolutely proud of itself. And some way this has filtered down through the generations and now has tainted even the Christians in that city. And keep in mind, uh, here, here no doubt most of them was born and raised there, and it's hard for them to break away from this attitude of pride. Now, notice the rebuke, verse 14, verse 15, and notice who it was from. And it's clear from this description it couldn't be anyone but Christ because he says that that it's from the amen. That word amen simply means truth. And here it's used as an official title of Christ. It's the affirmation, it's the confirmation of God. It is though that Christ is, you know, God in essence wrapped up the affirmation, the confirmation of God. And he says, and he's the faithful and the true witness and the beginning of creation. Now, the beginning of creation does not mean that he began with creation because he is eternal. It implies that creation had its beginning with Christ. He is the creator. So this is who the letter is from. And knowing it's from him, it certainly ought to get our attention in every respect. But notice what it was for. Verse number 15 well, I'll just sum it up with that one word there, lukewarm. They are being condemned for being lukewarm. And, you know, some folks have been surprised that, that he speaks of being cold, you know, as though that is better than being lukewarm. And, you know, and being hot would be better. I mean, being on fire and zealous for the Lord, that is obvious. But they can't understand why... It wouldn't be better to be lukewarm than it would to be cold. And there's a reason for that. And that reason is because those that are cold, those that feel the bitterness and the severity of life, they're much more likely to respond to the warmth and the love and the grace that God offers than others. This is why religious people are the hardest people on earth to reach. Because in their smug complacency, it's almost impossible to get through to them. They have a hope, but it is a false hope. And in their pride, they're not willing to listen to anyone else. So the Lord is saying, look, it, it would be better off if you, if you were cold than it is for you to be lukewarm. Then you would understand and so the Lord is speaking to them in regards to their lukewarmness. Now notice the result of this condition, verse 16. He says, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That is a picture of disappointment, a picture of disgust. To think about that he will repudiate those whose attachment to him is, you know, just nominal and it's superficial and 
And, and he says, uh, there's not going to be any of this middle-of-the-road stuff. There's not going to be any of this half-hearted stuff. You're either for me or you are against me. And so there can't be any middle ground. Uh, there's no fellowship with Christ unless it is wholehearted from our most innermost being. And that is the point of it here. And the Lord is saying, I will not accept anything else other than that. Now notice that he's speaking here about lukewarmness, not heresy. I don't think any of us would have been surprised if these people had had in some way got off on a tangent and was preaching air, that they had embraced something that was absolutely, totally contrary to the Word of God, it'd be real easy to see how the Lord say, I've had enough of this nonsense. Now you either get on the right track as far as truthfulness is concerned, or, or I, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. But that's not the issue here. It's not over the matter of truth. It's, and, and you know, our Bible doctrines, and we put such great value in that. We want to be right. Amen? I mean, that ought to be the desire of our heart. But there's more to it than that. He says, because you are lukewarm. You see, true faith and, and affection always expresses itself in our attitude and in our actions. And I can't think of anything that's done more harm to churches than, than lukewarmness. You know, no zeal, no uh, enthusiasm for the things of the Lord. And um, con consequently, we become offensive to others. Think about it. People do not expect anything from, from those that are unsaved, those that, are, uh, that make no profession of faith. You tell somebody, well, I'm not a Christian. They shrug their shoulders. Well, so what? I mean, you know, that's your choice. That's your right. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a Christian, and I love to have a beer now and then, and I'm, I might even cheat on my wife once in a while, and I've been known to dip my hand in the till and steal a little money. Well, that's up to you. Better not get caught. You know, the law is kind of strict on that kind of stuff. But it's not a big deal because they're not really expecting anything from you. But when you say, I'm a born-again, spirit-filled child of God on my way to heaven, forgiven by the grace of God, you tell them you're a Christian and all of a sudden their expectations about you go through the roof. It might be people you go to school with or people that you work with. But they have expectations of you when you claim to be a Christian. Now, what kind of an impression do we make on people when we go about our Christianity in a half-hearted, lukewarm way? What, do you suppose that impresses them? Do you suppose that, you know, causes them to wonder about this great religion that we've got and for them to want what we've got? This is exactly why so many times you hear people say, well, I'm not going to the church because they're just full of hypocrites. Well, that's a really, really poor excuse. But the sad fact is, too many times we Christians are hypocritical. We don't live up to the expectations that God has for us. And then we wonder why our next door neighbor doesn't want anything to do with our, with our Christianity, you see. 
So this is the result of the condition. It was, listen, and it was the same for them as it will be for us. There's not, he doesn't have one set of rules for them and another for us. If it was wrong for them to be lukewarm, it's wrong for us to be lukewarm. Now look at verse 17, and here's the reason for their condition. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, all there are many factors, all of them stem from this one thing, and that's pride. And uh, the word pride's not even mentioned here, right? But you can sure see it. It is obvious here by their attitude and by their actions. It's obvious that the root of their problem is pride. Notice what they said. He says, because thou sayest. You know, it's a sure sign of pride and spiritual decay whenever we talk a lot about ourselves and little or nothing about the Lord. They, they, they didn't say one word here about what a wonderful Savior we have. Not one word. But rather they're talking about who they are and what they have, boasting about themselves instead of their Savior. Their priorities was wrong. And they said, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But notice what God said. Now they said one thing. But this is what really matters. This is what God said. And he starts by saying, and knowest not. They boasted about themselves, but they were blind to their spiritual condition. And notice how he describes them. Thou art wretched. That means distressed. It is the same word that Paul used when he said, O wretched man that I am, and, and, you know, as he spoke about the matters of his sinful flesh, it's the same word. And the Lord said, you know, you think you're so great. He says, you're wretched and notice and miserable. And, and that, that word miserable is not so much about their feelings as it is about them uh, being pitied. It means pitiable. You know, you're, you're to be pitied. You're so full of pride and so full of self-confidence, but really you are to be pitied. And then he says, notice, and you're poor. Now, remember, they abounded in material goods, but yet God says you are poor. Isn't it sad that so many folks do not know how to measure true wealth and uh, there are a lot of churches, you know, that have a lot of material things, but yet they're bankrupt when it comes to the things that matter most. And that's what he's saying to this church. You can brag all you want about how much money's in the bank, you know, you, all of the things that you've got. You might have the most beautiful temple, you know, uh, uh, in, in all of Laodicea. But the Lord says you're poor, and then he says you're blind. That is, you lack spiritual perception. It's kind of another way of saying you don't have a clue of knowing what's really going on. You don't have a clue as to your true spiritual condition. And then he says that you are naked. Now, this is taking poverty to the greatest extreme. It's one thing to be poor. It's one thing, you know, to have to do without some things. But whenever he says you're naked, that is... Another way of saying, you don't have anything when you get right down to it. 
I, I know I've kept repeating that one of, the, one of the biggest problems we have is not seeing our problem. That's true across the board in all of Christendom because we uh, often think that we've got one problem when in reality we have another problem. You know, we talk about seeing our need and so uh, we generally fail at this point because we focus on the fruit instead of the root of the problem. For example, somebody talks about having a covetous spirit and they think, well, that's the problem. I'm just, I'm covetous and I've got to overcome that. Or somebody else say, well, you know, I've got this problem of fault finding. I just find fault with nearly everybody. Or maybe the problem seems to be conflict or unforgiveness or the matter of obedience or whatever it is. But understand the real problem in all of those issues is pride. That is at the root of every one of those evils that I've mentioned and everything you can think about because it contributes to all of them. And pride either causes us to do those things or it keeps us from conquering those things or both. And whatever the case is, it blinds us to our true spiritual condition. Amen. Let me tell you one of the biggest problems we preachers make. And that is the fact that oftentimes we think that we can convince people to do God's will by informing them or by pleading with them, just begging them to respond or maybe sometimes by even debating them over the issues. And we're going to prove our point. And boy, we've got all of the facts lined up there and and so we appeal to their reasoning and appeal to their logic to make our, our case. And because we're determined we're going to convince them that God's way is right and God's way is best. And listen, every God-called preacher has a desire for people to respond to the Word of God. If he doesn't, he ought to resign and do something honest. Because that ought to be the desire of our heart, that God's will be done, and that whenever His Word is preached, that people will respond according to His will. You know, it's for their good, it's for God's glory. And so the pastor strives to communicate this in order that they will respond. And what happens is, whenever they fail to respond, sometimes it leads to discouragement with the pastor, and even depression, and there are those that just literally drop out of the, out, out of the ministry. You see, now listen, this, this is not just a pastor problem. It goes far beyond that. It's true of everybody because every Christian is involved in the spiritual warfare. And um, life isn't easy for any of us. Serving God's not easy for any of us. You set out to serve God and all of a sudden the devil's going to do everything in his power to stop you. And there's only one thing that can help you. Only one way that we can succeed. And that's as Paul said in Ephesians 5.18. Be ye filled with the Spirit. That is the only way. He said for in, in Philippians. For it is God which worketh in you. Both to will. Now listen to this. Both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So God puts that desire within our heart, you know, to, to will. We, we want to do God's will because He encourages us to do that. But it's God that enables us to do it. And so when He says, be ye filled with the Spirit, that, that's not just a suggestion. 
It's not just a mere request. This is a commandment from God because if we're not under the Spirit's control, we are totally out of control. You know, everybody here could make a list of their problems, but, but few people really do what's necessary to eliminate those problems. What is it? It's to be under the control of the Spirit of God. And it's a waste of time, you know, trying to solve all of our problems with a stiff upper lip, you know, and we scotch our feet and square our shoulders and we're tough. We're rugged individualists. We're going to overcome this and we're going to overcome that. No, you're going to fail before you even start because you're dependent on what you can do instead of what God can do. And no amount of human effort can make up for the lack of a spirit-filled ministry. You know, when we think about the Spirit of God and remember that we as believers are indwelt by the Spirit of God and this church is a house of God. It's where the Spirit of God dwells. But sadly, so many times we depend upon what we can do instead of what God can do. You know, I think about in some churches the only invisible power uh, in, in the church is Wi-Fi. That, that, that's about it. It's, it's, it's like one, one preacher said years ago, said, you know, the Holy Spirit could absolutely leave this world and most churches wouldn't even know it. They would go right on operating just like they always have and thought everything was good when the Holy Spirit's not even here. They don't see their need of Him. And every one of us, are in need of the Spirit of God enabling us to do the will of God. I, you know, I could focus on uh, a different sin every week. Aren't you glad I don't? So, okay, here's a list. I've made this list of all of these sins and 52 weeks. And every week of the year, I'm going to preach on one of these, uh, one of these sins. And boy, I could get detail. I could talk about the nature of the sin and the danger of the sin and, and the call for repentance and all of that. But let me tell you, there's absolutely nothing, nothing would change for the better unless God, by His Spirit, used me to communicate the truth of that message in a way and you would be willing to accept that and surrender yourself to the control of the Holy Spirit and by yielding yourself, God would enable you to do what you've never been able to do. Amen. So now, beginning in verse 18, he deals with the remedy. Now remember, he's rebuked them in no uncertain terms. And he revealed to them the reason for it because they're lukewarm. And the result of it, he said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. But now we get down to the remedy of the situation in these next verses and and it's very clear just as it is over and over in the bible i counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire you see he's using the language of commerce he's not saying you've got to buy this literally but he's using the language they use as the merchants in the street are selling their goods and what have you. He says, Buy of me the gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that thy shame and thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and what? 
and repent. Now, our first need is to see our need, to be aware of our sinfulness. And this is where, this is where they are hung up. This is where they're facing this roadblock because they cannot get beyond the vision of their pride as to how good and how great they are. But here he's giving them the remedy, and he says, Buy me gold tried in the fire, white raiment. And then notice he mentions the need for eye salve. Uh, why, why would you need medicine for your eyes? Isn't it to help you see better, right? Uh, I, I, you know, the, the last two or three weeks, I'm having a lot of problems with my eyes, and I know I've got to go see uh, the doctor about that and so forth, but it, it's becoming a real problem. And uh, there, there are times, you know, whether you want to believe it or not, a doctor can actually help you. Glasses can actually help. I'm, I started carrying these again because certain parts of my Bible, I, I can't read without them now. They've come up with this amazing eye salve that they use that helps people. And the Lord is, I think, telling them, here, you're looking in the wrong place. You need to look to me for the eye salve because I'm the one that can open your eyes and enable you to see. Remember, Remember the natural man, the Bible says, receiveth not the things of God. Why? Because the God of this world has blinded their minds, lest the light of the glorious gospel shine unto them. They don't have a clue. Oh, they can read the words. They can understand the history of it, that this happened here and this happened over there. They understand that, of course. But they have no concept of the spiritual truth that God is conveying when they read it. And the problem is so many times we imagine ourselves to be better than we are exactly what their problem was. They imagine they're better than they are. Well, how are we going to figure out just how good we are? Well, we've got to have a standard, right? And I, I just happen to have a copy of that standard here in my hand. It, it's, it's called the Word of God, the Bible, you see. The standard is not other churches. And, and, and so many times, you know, people want to compare uh, their church to another church, how much better they are. I'll tell you what, if, if you want to compare our church to another church, do this. Let's compare ourselves to the early church. How about that? Uh, uh, our, our grade's not so good then. Yeah. When we look back and see that early church, that spirit-filled church where they all met together and every member was filled with the Spirit of God, we don't stack up too good then. It doesn't do us a bit of good to say that we are the best church in Houston. And we, look, we might be, but there's a big difference between being average and being normal. And you've heard me say this many a time. Somebody can be in the cancer ward of a hospital and everybody in there has got cancer, but your cancer is not as bad as 90% of the others are in there. So you can think, hey, man, I'm all right. I'm better off than all of these other people that are in this cancer ward. I'm checking out tomorrow. I'm going home. Why? Well, because I'm better than average. Yeah, but you're dying of cancer. But I'm better than average. You see, it's just not normal. 
And for a church, we don't want to be better than average. We want to be normal. What is normal for the Christian? And that is what? To be a Spirit-filled believer. Now listen. You can believe whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. But here's something you can't do. You cannot escape the consequences of your choice. When you make the choice to believe whatever it is or do whatever you want to do, you cannot determine what the consequences are going to be. God's going to decide that. And in these verses I just read here, notice he asserted his love for them. As many as I love, he's speaking to them, I chasten. So he asserts his love for them. He warns them of chastisement. But then notice he calls for repentance. Repentance has to do with a change of mind that results in a change of life. And that is the only solution. So many times we uh, people write books about how to have a great revival. How to have a revival. Well, well, I can sum it all up in one word. Repent. Repent. I mean, that tells the whole story. And so many times we get so worried about the condition of our nation or sometimes the condition of our church. We can look around and we say, boy, you know, I, I, we could be better at this and we could be better at that. We, we need to fix this. We need to get on top of this because this, is, this might become a real problem. You know what the real problem is? The real problem is the person that sees those problems and they're not willing to recognize that they are a part of the problem. The only way you or I or any of us can have a positive effect on this church is for us to change. It starts with us. Like an old preacher said many years ago, he said, if you want to have a revival, if you want to see your church on fire and revive, he said, get down on your knees and draw a big circle around you and pray that God will send a revival there in the middle of that circle. And that's what it's all about right there is for each one of us as individuals to see our need, to see where we really stand before God. And pride will blind us to our true spiritual condition and it will absolutely, literally destroy our lives. Oh, listen this morning. If maybe there's some issue, something I haven't even mentioned, but it's a real problem in your life. Like I said, it might be a covetous spirit. It might be an attitude of unforgiveness toward other people. And you can think of 411 different reasons why it is that you can't overcome that and why it's so difficult for you. Listen, the, the whole issue in that regards has to do with the pride that's in your heart that, that causes you to have or to harbor that particular sin in your life. And it'll never get better to what? We humble ourselves and pray. Right? And turn from our wicked ways. There's repentance. Turn from your wicked ways. And if we do that, then we have God's promise that He'll hear and He'll heal and He'll forgive. That sounds good to me. Let's all stand. Father, forgive us, Lord, of our pride. Forgive us of the times that we are, that we are absolutely blessed.
blind to our own spiritual condition. And Lord, whenever I say forgive us, I mean forgive me to start with. And so many times that I know that I have failed and uh, the last thing I want to do is to admit that I failed in some area. And Lord, just help me to see myself even as, as you see me. Search my heart. Know my heart today. And give me the eyes to see and to understand what you see in my heart and in my life. And God, by your grace, may I humble myself before your throne and surrender myself without any reservation that your Holy Spirit might be in absolute, total control of my life. And I just pray that here today that, that you indeed would revive our hearts and that that personal effect would have a corporate effect on the entire church, that whatever we are, that we'd even become better. May we never be content being average, but help us, Lord, to be what it is that is pleasing in your sight and help us to realize that other people are watching. The eyes of this community is upon us. And God, help us to live a life that is blameless, above reproach. In Jesus' name, amen. While we sing together. <laughs>